Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Let's get started. DealQuest community, I am so excited to have Mark Podolsky, aka The Land Geek, on this week's episode. He has been buying and selling raw land full-time since 2001. He's completed over 5,500 land deals, and his company, Frontier Equity Properties, has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. He is also the author of Dirt Rich, the ultimate guide to helping you build a passive income model in raw land investing. Mark helps entrepreneurs learn how to dominate their market and double their land investing income. Folks, I'm so I'm excited to have Mark on the program. We've had some real estate folks in the past, but not really around raw land investing. I know a lot of my listeners are always looking for diversification opportunities in terms of their investing or, you know, sort of side businesses, additional businesses, uh, you know, and things like that. So, uh, Mark, I'm really looking forward to having you on. Welcome. Corey, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So listen, before we get into what you do for folks and what the opportunities are out there and all your expertise, I want to take you back to when you were a kid growing up, 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is uh, an investor in rural land probably wasn't it back then, but you tell me. No, I think when I was eight, I wanted to be an NBA player. <laughs> um, I love basketball. Yeah. So no, I, I had no idea about raw land. I'm still learning. There's yeah, a lot yeah, to yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> Were you tall for a kid? Uh, was uh, or you just did, I would pray enough. every night to grow. My dad's five nine. <laughs> and I'd pray. You know, I'd pray. And then I, I actually I over six feet. I think it was all the praying. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's great. And what was your looking back again? What was your first deal of any type? It could have been when you were a little kid. Could have been early in your career. Anything that comes to mind that you consider a deal. Yeah. So I'll. I, I was one of those kids, like I was, I was a hustler as a kid. Yeah. So for whatever reason, I loved deals. And my dad was the wholesale grocer. And I remember okay. going to the grocery store and like, dad can I have that pack of gum. He's like, no, it's a dollar. I buy it for 70 cents. I guess that's not a deal. <laughs> so I remember it being as a, a kid. Uh, first I had a lemonade stand. I was probably yeah. like 10. Yeah. Then I started big guy cookie company. So what I would do, remember those big cookies that you know you, people would get for graduation. Yeah. So my neighbor and I would use our parents' raw ingredients, so we had no overhead. And we'd bake these big cookies, and we'd go door to door, and we were adorable, like eleven years old. Of course, and we'd sell these cookies for five bucks. We each made like three hundred bucks over that summer. Wow. Um, then I, my parents would take me out to eat, and I would say, "Hey, can I get a, a soda?" Well, soda's like a buck twenty-nine. Like, no, you can have water. So I'm like, okay, I had to figure out how to get a drink. So I would go up to the bartender and I'd learn magic and I would start, you know, I was like, look, if I can do this 
can I get a free Shirley Temple? And again, I'm adorable. I am 11, 12 years old. Like, sure. So I would con the bartender out for free drinks um, and get Shirley Temples. Uh, Then in high school, if you wanted to get a corsage or boutonniere, because I was kind of an awkward kid, um, I locked up deals with all the florists in town. And I said, I will sell all your corsages and boutonnieres for prom and homecoming and all these things. So if you wanted to get one, you had to go through me and I got a commission. So I was like the corsage boutonniere mafia. (laughs) And not only that, but like, so that was only during a period, but like my dad was a wholesale grocer. So for my sister and I would bring home a case of Snickers bars. Well, we're not going to eat a whole case of Snickers bars. And I noticed that our vending machine, no Snickers bars. So I would go and it's the, it get lunch and like, Hey, buck for a Snicker bar. Again, no overhead. Right. So I would make money doing that. <laughs> and so I've always sort of like kind of a deal junkie as a kid growing up. And um, so that's how it kind of started. I love it. We, we, we have a lot in common. I won't tell a lot of my story because it's not about me, but I, I will quickly mention two things. You know, one, and some of my listeners know I used to deliver flyers door to door as a as a teenager. And, and, and one day we got, instead of flyers, you know, we would stick those flyers in people's screen doors all in Brooklyn. The houses were all close to each other. Uh, we got samples of Starburst uh, candy. All right. And we had to hand out the samples and uh, they delivered extra and we finished everything on the route and nobody asked, asked me back, you know, for the extra ones. So I went and sold them to the local candy store. I made a chunk of money on that. Plus I ended up getting clients on the route. So at, at 15 years old, I had a business because I would go into stores and say, we deliver flyers but I'd get my own accounts as opposed to bring them to the company and, uh, and I had my friends. So, you know, so you and I have that in common. And then when I talk about the exclusive lockup, when I was in college, there was a beer distributor. This is in, in New York when the drinking age was 18. So you could drink on college campuses and uh, we would have, uh, you know, the, all the dorms would have parties Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. And they would have to get, you know, if you wanted to drive to the beer distributor and pick up one keg, you could do that. But if you wanted 15 kegs, 10 kegs for your party, they would deliver it and they didn't want to deliver it to 100 people. So they had only two exclusive reps on campus, one on each side. My, and I was the exclusive rep my last two years of college on my side of campus. So anybody who needed beer delivered on campus had to go through me. So you want to talk about, you know, controlling a commodity. Oh. And in college, controlling beer is is a very good gig. That is the honestly, that's the best gig <laughs> Ever. I don't know why you would even graduate. I drank free at every party. I get all the beer paraphernalia and lights that everybody wanted. It was, oh, it was amazing. I, I got a wholesale price. I could charge my whatever I wanted, you know, to, to folks. Yeah. It was amazing. Any case. They, they, they made a movie about you called Old School. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. All right. So, so we, we were both deal makers from when we were a kid. So let's talk about it. How, talk about your, your path a little bit. Like, how did you get into Roland? What were we doing before that? I, I assume you, you didn't, you know, graduate from school and suddenly buying Roland, or maybe you did. I don't know. Can you tell me? No, was I, the, I was, was a miserable, micromanaged, 45-minute commute to work and back investment banker uh-huh. specializing in mergers and acquisitions with private equity groups. And Corey, it got so bad for me, I wouldn't get the Sunday blues anticipating Monday coming around, yeah. I'd get the Friday blues, anticipating the weekend going by really fast and having to be back at work on Monday. Wow. So my firm hires this guy and he's telling me that as a side hustle, he's buying up raw land, pennies on the dollar at tax deed auctions. Okay. He's flipping them online and he's making a 300% return on his money. 
<laughs> well, Corey, I'm looking at companies all day long. Great company. 15% EBITDA margins or free cash flow. Right. Average company, 10%. I'm looking at companies all day long, less than 10%. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. I'm from the show me state. I don't believe them. I've got three grand saved up for car repairs. I go with him to New Mexico. I do exactly what he tells me to do. I buy 10 half acre parcels, an average price of $300 each. I flip them online. They all sell for an average price of $1,200 each. 300% it worked. Wow. So I took all that money. I went to another auction in Arizona, which is where I live. And again, this is 2000. There's no one in the room. I'm buying up lots and acreage for like nothing. I flip all that land. I make over $90,000 cash. So I go to my wife, like, honey, I'm going to quit my job, and become a full-time land investor. Oh, I'm sure she was thrilled oh, yeah. about that, huh? And pregnant, by the way. Oh, you're pushing your luck, buddy. <laughs> so she's like, absolutely not. So I said, right. okay, okay. Right. So it took me about 18 months for the land investing income to exceed the investment banking income. Wow. And then I did quit, and I've been doing it full-time ever since. Wow. All right. So actually, it's interesting. I, I want to take, take a jump to the president, and then we go back, because- you know, what came across my mind, what may come across a lot of listeners' minds is, oh, yeah, oh, sure, that was a great game back in 2000, right? You know, things were cheap, you know, but like, isn't all the land gone now? Isn't it much more expensive? Can you still, you're obviously still in the business, so I assume I know what your answer is going to be. Well, let's get that objection potentially out of people's minds. What's the current situation? Is that still doable? Yeah, absolutely. It's such a good question because, and actually, when I started teaching people how to do what I do, my wife's like, what are you doing? you're creating your own competition. This is right. dumb. So I'm like, well, let's put on our investment banker hat. How big is the market? Mm-hmm. So there are billions of acres of land for sale in this country. Wow. There is no one doing it. There's no private equity groups. There's no hedge funds. It's, you know, it's sexy real estate niche you could think of. If you go on HGTV or the DIY network, you'll never see me on flip this land. The before pictures are all land. The after pictures are all right, land. Right. It's not good on TV, right? <laughs> it's not good on TV. It's not sexy. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I remember thinking in 2002, because average, our average margin is 300 to 1,000%. And I remember thinking, you know, there's no way these margins are sustainable. One day in the future, you're looking at a 30% gross margin business. The margins have remained the same. Wow. The inefficiencies in the business have remained the same. No one knows the value of their raw land. Wow. No one. It's literally what a buyer and seller agree to do still. So because of that, it's, the land market is very strong. It's stronger today than when I started simply because it's the first time in 22 years that I remember an inflationary environment. Mm-hmm. So- you know, we're talking about a, a standard hedge for inflation is buying raw land. So we're selling like crazy. Prices have risen from, let's say, 2018, 2019 prices uh, substantially, but the ratios have also remained the same. Yeah. So to answer your question, yeah, there's, this is a tremendous, tremendous viable market and opportunity. And you, me, a million people could get in this niche. We'll all run out of money before we run out of deal flow. Wow. And, and listen, you know, there's so many other places in this market where there's actually so much money and not enough deals, right? I mean, you know, I'm looking at the private equity market, you know, and a lot of good corporate sectors and whatever. I mean, you know, I, I, do, I do a bunch of stuff in financial services, for example. There's, there's more money than deals, right? There's a lot more money than deals. Absolutely. 
Yeah. So, you know, to have to find anything where there's more deals than money these days is uh, is phenomenal. So, you know, folks, even if this is not your primary area, I mean, I got to tell you, I'm listening closely, <laughs> you know, to see whether uh, this is a diversification opportunity. Um, so let, let me let me ask one other it might seem like a stupid question, but like so you flip roll land, somebody buys it, it's roll land. Right. At some point, somebody's got to figure that they can create more value out of that roll land. Right. So you're like, what what happened? Who, who are the buyers when you flip? What do they do with the land? Uh, are they holding it and then flipping as well? Or is, are these on the edges of cities and places that are, that are expanding and eventually it's going to get developed? You know, is it what is the ultimate use of this land that you're investing in? It's such a good question, Corey. There's a lust for land in this country. You know, we're buying rural land. So it's maybe yeah. two, three hours from their city. Yep. These are for people that want to use it recreationally. You know, that's because like if someone calls me and says, I want to build my dream home out there. I'm like, well, you're, you're 30 miles from surfaces. You know, there's no utilities out here. So no, um, there's people out there called preppers. They're preparing for the worst. They're hoping yep. for the best. They love this raw land, military people, people that don't like people. They all want this, this rural land. So if you grew up hearing, you know, buy land, it's, it's sort of this legacy investment. Ted Turner's got this great quote, buy land. It's the only thing that lasts. And he's right. When you think about it, it's the only thing that lasts. Styrofoam lasts a long time, but even at some point that will go away. Right. Um, so, you know, we get a lot of people that just want it as a legacy investment. In, in, a, in a way, I call it man jewelry, right? Like it just feels good to know you own 40 acres. Yep. All right. So um, talk to us a little bit about, um, in addition to investing yourself now at this point, you teach people how to, how to do this, right? Uh, so yeah. Talk, so my, my mission now, I mean, first of all, I love buying and selling raw land. I do it every day. It's definitely a passion, but no, no land buyer has ever said to me, Mark, you've changed my life with this land purchase. Right. But helping people get out of what I call solo economic dependency, mm-hmm. which means if they're personally not working, they're not making any money. Yep. has been so gratifying to me. And just the fact that people have retired uh, from jobs they hated, they retired spouses so they could spend more time with their children. They've uh, been able to travel around the world and do the things they want to do. has been tremendously gratifying for me. And that's really been my mission is that this market is so big to help people get into something that I think is the best passive income model. And you and I can debate it has been tremendously gratifying. That's great. Um, so, so talk to us about, I mean, listen, obviously, you know, on a podcast, you're not going to, I'm sure your training programs are extensive and there's a lot involved in them, but talk, give us some of the highlights of like, what are the highlights about uh, being in this kind of business or, or investing in it? Uh, you know, uh, in terms of, I mean, I, obviously you've different, you, you got to be able to find the land, you got to be able to value it. You got to be able to know you can sell it. You got to be able to, you know, you know, I'm sure there are factors involved in evaluating land itself. You know, talk to us about some highlights, uh, you know, in, in, in the various areas, if you're going to be in this kind of business. Yeah, Corey, let's use you as a case study. And I walk you step by step through the whole model. Right. So um, where are you located now? Uh, I'm in my place in, in Marina Del Rey, California. So that's Los Angeles. <laughs> okay. So you're in Los Angeles and you've lost all complaining privileges. I am sorry, but I'm going to assume that you own five acres of raw land in Texas okay. and you owe $200 in back taxes. Yep. So you're advertising two important things to me. Number one, you have no emotional attachment to the raw land. Right. Lands in Texas, you're in California. Yep. And number two, you're distressed financially in some weird way. 
Because right. we don't pay for things. I'm not paying my taxes. We don't value them the same way. As a result, kind of treasurer keeps calling you, not calling you, but sending you notices saying, Corey, if you don't pay your taxes, you're going to lose that property to a tax lien or a tax deed investor. Yep. So all I'm going to do is take a look at the comparable sales on your five-acre parcel for the last 12 to 18 months. I'm going to take the lowest comparable sale. I'm going to divide by four. That's going to give me what Warren Buffett would call a 300% margin of safety. Yeah. I'm going to send you an actual offer on your five-acre parcel. Now you accept it because for you, let's just say, let's just use easy numbers. Uh, let's say that the lowest comp I found is 10 grand. I send you an offer for $2,500 for your five acres. You accept it. $2,500, better than nothing. In reality, three to 5% of people accept my quote unquote top dollar offer. Yep. But now that you've accepted it, I have to go through due diligence or in-depth sure. research. Do you still own the property? Mm-hmm. Our back tax is only $200. Have there been any breaks in the chain of title? Are there any liens or encumbrances? What are the restrictions? What's compelling about the property? What's access like? So I have this whole big checklist. I outsource this to my team in the Philippines. Costs about 11 bucks. They're connected to an American title company. Mm-hmm. And as they're doing their due diligence for me, they're giving me the plat maps, the aerial maps, the satellite maps, everything I'm going to need for my buyer, for my marketing package. Let's assume everything checks out. I buy the property for you for $2,500. I'm going to sell this property 30 days or less. I'm going to make a cash flow like a home. So, I, Corey, I have a built-in best buyer. Do you know who it is? Tell me. The neighbors. I'll send out neighbor letters saying, hey, here's your opportunity. Protect yep. your privacy. Protect your views. Know your neighbor. Oftentimes, the neighbors will buy it. Now, if they pass, I'll go to my buyer's list. They pass there. I'll go to a little website you may have never heard of. It's called Craigslist. Tenth mm-hmm. most trafficked website in the United States. Mm-hmm. I'll go to another one. I know you've heard of this one. It's called Meta or Facebook. Buy, Facebook. sell groups. The yep. marketplace. Yep. And then I'll go to lands, landmoto.com, landsofamerica.com, landandfarm.com, landflip.com, landhub.com. So these are platforms where people buy and sell raw land. But the way that I sell it is where the magic happens. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make it irresistible. All I'm going to ask for from somebody to control Corey Kupfer's five-acre parcel of land in Texas is a $2,500 down payment. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to make it a car payment. Let's so say, you're going to take it down payment that covers your, that gets you even on your investment. So right. you got, you got, you know, so you're good there. So everything else is gravy. And, and then, then I'll you take got, then a you car do, payment. Yeah. Let's, let's call it a Honda Civic, $299 a month, 9% interest over the next 84 months. So it's a one time sale. I get my money out on the down. I might go six to 10 months out if I have to. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to get $299 a month, 9% interest over the next 84 months. Corey, no renters, no rehabs, no renovations. No rodents. And because I'm not dealing with the tenant, I'm exempt from Dodd-Frank, RESPA, and the SAFE Act, all this mm-hmm. onerous real estate legislation. And then it's a simple game. Can I create enough of these land notes where my passive income exceeds my fixed expenses? And now I'm living like you, doing, you know, working when I want, where I want, with whom I want, and really moving up what I would call Maslow's hierarchy of needs into self-actualization and figure out what I really want to do in life. Yeah. So, and, 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 you know, basically people are doing work for you at very low rates in the Philippines. You've got some marketing costs, right? You've got, I mean, there's not a huge amount of, you know, you've got obviously your investment in the property. Um, maybe, you know, you've got some minor 
tax carrying costs or whatever, you know, the time in between when you buy it and you flip it, right? Like there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of overhead in this business, right? No, my average, you know, gross margin is, you know, on a terms deal, about a thousand percent on a cash deal, 300%. It's extremely profitable. I say my average client's fixed overhead, not including mailing with their virtual assistant teams and software is a thousand to 1500 bucks a month. All right. So then uh, what, ha- I guess the only, you know, risk there then is on, on the deals you're doing over time, somebody stops paying, right? You gotta, you know. Um, well, there's no risk because we use land contracts instead of a deed of trust, which means it. that we own the underlying asset until they pay off their promissory note. So if they uh, default. So this is not a transfer payment. title with a mortgage where you have to foreclose. Nope. This is a basically like an installment payment, uh, you know, on a, you know, it's like a layaway plan almost in the old time stores, right? You know, where you would you'd pay money and the store would still hold on to the goods, but they would supposedly have it put aside for you. And then, you know, when you paid off, you got the goods. So interesting. You got it. Exactly. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. All right. So there, right. So there's no, when you're thinking that through, right, there's nothing to foreclose on. You still have title. You still own it. You know, uh, I assume they, they have access to the land while they're paying. Yeah, but they can't make any, they can't build on it. You have to have the ownership to get a, a builder's permit. But yeah, if you want to put a fence around it, you want to drop a well, you want to improve my property, go for it. You're, you're welcome to it. Right. But right. You, I keep those improvements if you default. Right. I'm sure I'm sure your contract says that they use the default. Interesting. Yeah. So are you mainly searching, you know, you talked about, you gave the example of over the taxes. Uh, you know, in terms of identifying land opportunities, are you mainly searching for tax liens or actually it's before you know, taxes owed or anything like that? Or, or are there other ways that you're getting identifying potential properties? Well, the, the way I identify the properties is I'm going to go where I know there's a market. Yep. So I might start at like a landmoto.com and see where are other land investors getting deals. Yes. So I know definitively I'm going to get a deal there. So think about it like this. Let's say you and I go out fishing on one side of the lake. There's two boats. They're not catching any fish. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the lake, there's 50 boats and they're all catching fish. Yep. Where do we go? Well, it's counterintuitive. We want to go where the other two are, right? We want to go where the other 50 boats are. That's where they're, they're catching all the fish. But a lot of times they're like, oh, no, I want to go where the other two are. That's, right. but that's not where the fish are. Right, because you think there's less competition, but, the, but there's a reason for it. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, in the other issues, it's a big country, right? There's 3,007 U.S. counties. But Corey, let's face it, nobody wakes up, thinks to themselves, boy, I like some raw land in Iowa today, unless you live in Iowa. So we're focused on Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, California, did I say Oregon, Washington, mm-hmm. Florida. So these are the sunshine states. These are fast-growing states, Texas, obviously. That's where we're going to get the majority of our deals because we want our biggest buyer pool. I want that person who's freezing right now in Minneapolis to look at my ad and be like, boy, wouldn't it be great to go visit that property in Florida? Love it. And, and how are most of these properties zoned? Uh, rural residential. Okay. 
So in theory, at some point, somebody could build on it, but that's not, but the service is just so far out at this point that, you know. Correct. Interesting. So who's the typical person that comes to your programs that wants to be, you know, wants to be trained in doing this? It's literally a 42-year-old man with two children (laughs) that hates his job, typically. Uh, Uh, You know, a corporate type, maybe a software engineer, tired of working for the man, wants to start building a passive income, wants to replace his income, is a typical sort of person that wants to do this. Now, we also have what I, so um, we have people who are rich. We've got doctors mm-hmm. and lawyers, but they want to become wealthy. They want time affluence. So yeah. their money problems are solved, but their time problems have been solved. Yeah. We have a program for them as well um, where they, you know, it's like it's done for you mm-hmm. and they can just be passive. So let's talk about that just a little bit because, um, you know, a lot of our listeners are, Entrepreneurs, they could be professionals, they could be entrepreneurs in, in various industries, whether that's, you know, financial services, wealth management, tech, whatever. And certainly, you know, they're, a lot of them are actually very happy with their position, but always looking to diversify and always looking for certainly, you know, passive income. I mean, a lot of the, the holy grail of, uh, uh, I know many, many entrepreneurs who love what they do, but the biggest thing that they don't love is that it's not passive, right? And they've right. got to, you know, and, 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 and you know, they're in my entrepreneurial organization community, many of the entrepreneurial communities, the biggest thing is to, you know, the, the goal is to create a business that you can work on and not in, even if it's not totally passive. So people have that mentality, you know, even if they're more successful and looking for opportunities. There. So um, like at a high level concept, what they're basically doing is making they're investing in, in a fund or something or in... Correct. You know, okay, that right. you are, you know... That we're managing. Make, that you're managing and making those investments. So this yeah. would be a passive investment into, into a fund or into an entity or whatever it is that actually makes those kind of investments. And then obviously they would share, I'm sure there's some sort of management fee or whatever, and they would share in, the, in those profits. At exactly. Yeah. yeah, right. But our, our management fee is exorbitant. And then um, just generally, you know, high level, what do these training programs look like? You know, is it, is it online? Is it a long period of time? Do people show up in person on seminars? Like what, what does that model look like for you? So there's definitely different, you know, avenues depending on that person. So there's people that, you know, it's just like a, use like a, a gym metaphor, right? Are you, are you the kind of person that can read a book on working out, have the self-discipline to get up at 4.30 in the morning, be at the gym by five, you know, and execute on what you learned? That's a do-it-yourself program. We have that. Yep. If you're the kind of person that goes to the gym and knows that unless they've got instruction, like a group class, they're not going to work out unless they've got that person showing them what to do. We've got that. And then we've got the people that say, oh, you know, I want that personal one-on-one service. Mm-hmm. I want a personal trainer. We have that as well. Got it. That's it. And that's a good analogy. You know, I'm, uh, it's funny. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a do-it-myself person in a lot of areas, but in the gym area, without a personal trainer, like I know, I never miss a session with my personal trainer. Right. I never go to the gym without my personal trainer. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, you know, and this stuff is, you know, it's a simple model, but you know, nothing's easy. So having that accountability is really, yeah. really helpful. But you know, I've got tons of free information as well, tons of it. All right, so let me ask you a question because I don't know a single deal maker in any sector, no matter how lucrative or hot or whatever it's been that doesn't have some that don't work out, right? You know, even if it's a handful out of hundreds or thousands, right? So t- tell me about the ones that went bad and why did they go bad? And, you know, that'll lead us generally, why, what are the mistakes people make in, in, in this space? Yeah, so let's talk about Treasure Lake. Let's okay. rewind the tape to 2006. 
and the real estate market is hot and I think I'm a hot shot and I'm making a lot of money in raw land and I get on a plane with my suit and I meet with the people at Treasure Lake. It is a gated community. There are two PGA rated golf courses. There's three lakes, million dollar homes, but they've got a thousand lots undeveloped and there's all, there's a property owners association. So I go in there and I'm fancy and I've got my investment banking background. I'm like, look, folks, you got dead money and I'm going to resurrect it. You're not collecting property notes association fees. The county's not collecting taxes. All you have to do is give me these lots. I'll market them. I'll sell them. I'll collect for you your taxes, your POA fees. Everyone's going to be happy. Corey, you think they would say yes, right? Yeah. No, no. It's a property owners association. Have you ever been to yeah. one of these meetings? Yep. Forget it. They're yeah. terrible. They're terrible. boaters. It's like, they're, they're, it's, like, it's like condo boards in New York, co-op boards in New York City. The same thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mark's going to bring all these people in. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to get a tea time. I'm not going to be able to be on the boat anymore. Right. It's terrible. So I negotiate with them for about two years. Okay. And finally, they do it. And I buy a 1,000 lots at 50 bucks each. In 2008 now? 2008. Okay. <laughs> and sure enough, I make about 100 grand really fast until late 2008. Yeah. And I can't give these things away. Yeah. So it was the first time that I couldn't keep a promise. And I had to give back uh, the lots that I, that I couldn't sell. Mm. And uh, that's to date been my worst deal. So even though I made money, when I factored in my time, sure. I, really, I really broke even on that deal. Yeah. And that sounds like a, it's interesting. That's a, that's a different deal for you as well, right? Because it's not rural, super rural land, right? It's, you know, it was a different deal. No, I, I oh. fell in love with the property. It was, it was beautiful, but I'm not at the market. I, I had to learn a very tough lesson. Yeah. Now on the, on the more typical stuff that you do invest in now that you train on and whatever, what, what are some of the mistakes people can make in investing in that more rural you know, uh, land? Yeah, it's hard to make a mistake, actually. So okay. Because we're not going to buy in Ohio. We're not buying in Pennsylvania. We're not buying yeah. in New Jersey, where yeah. you have environmental issues. Yeah. So if you're worried about that, you just go to epa.gov yeah. and make sure you're not buying in a super fun site. Yeah. That you, don't, you definitely don't want to do. The biggest mistake I see my clients make is they buy a piece of land, and then they stop their mailing. because well, they just bought a piece of land. I'm mm-hmm. not going to buy any more land until I sell this piece. Right. Maybe Mark is full of it. Maybe it doesn't work. Right. So then they sell the land and then they're Chick-fil-A with no chicken. Right. And it's about a six-week process now to get their deal flow going. Right. So I would, I would say never stop mailing is one of the biggest mistakes I, I see people make. It's uh, just, yeah, keep that deal flow coming. Keep yeah. that deal flow going. Yeah, got it. Got it. Interesting. So what else have, uh, you know, any, either on the, on, the, on the positive or side or the tough lesson side, you know, have you learned along the way that would be helpful for folks who are thinking about this, this market or even, you know, some of this relates to general deal principles, right? That could potentially apply in any kind of, any kind of deal maybe. So uh, anything that come to mind? Yeah, I mean, when I was, I remember, you know, out of my investment banking job, right? I started doing what I called a business, but I was doing everything. Yeah. So I go to coffee with my mentor, Ori, and Ori just sold his company for $360 million of Experian. And I'm telling him about my 
business. <laughs> and he's like, Mark, stop. He's like, you're insulting me. I'm like, what are you talking about? I was like, please stop calling this a business. He's like, you've built yourself a nice job. Yeah. But what happens if you die? What happens to your family? Does your so-called business continue to run? Right. And I'm like, no. So he helped me get out of the business sort of e-myth style, setting up systems, processes, software, automation, and then using three leverage points, right? Other people's time, other uh, software, and other people's money. Yep. And so that's, that's really where you know, the business has evolved today as myself as an entrepreneur and thinking about the world in that, in that way, having this philosophy, I can always make more money, yep. but I can't get more time. What's going to save me time? Yeah, and I got to tell you something, you know, as, as for those of us, uh, you know, that's true for myself, it's true for a lot of my clients who are blessed enough to run successful businesses, that time, time money arbitrage, you know, really, really, really shifts. I mean, I just was on a conversation, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday, you know, I was doing well, and but it was, you know, was like exhausted, right? Totally crunched, just exhausted, right? Uh, and I said to her, uh, you know, she said, Courtney, you seem to like have all the stuff you do, right? You know, you run a law firm, you have a podcast, you, you're a professional speaker, you have, you know, you wrote a book, whatever, you know, like, how, how do you do all that? And I'm like, team, <laughs> like, you know, like people, other people, right? You know, I, I uh, you know, there's a reason why I wrote my book the way I wrote my book, right? You know, I, I, I had, you know, I went to, you know, again, the time of money arbitrage, right? I went to a hybrid publisher where I cut him a check for 35 grand, Right. I like paid my publisher. Why did I pay my publisher? Because and the paid publishers, they do everything for you except for right. I mean, they even had a, a Tokyo book program where the initial draft of my book, because I used to do talks on, on negotiating. Right. I just spoke it out and, and a writer gave me a draft. Now, the difference that I spent a lot of personal time rewriting that to have it be not some mediocre piece of garbage and something that really reflected me because that's what I wanted. But the point was, I got that initial draft even more so they handled all the the copyright, the ISDN numbers, the publisher, the distributing, the printing, the cover art, they gave me, you know, whatever, right? That's just an example. Uh, you know, I've got teams in, in my law firm that do, you know, other people do 85% of the work, right? So, you know, the ability to, as you, as you in any business, as you come along to um, get that time back and, you know, and if you're fortunate enough to, you know, it's not the only answer, but certainly throwing money at a bunch of stuff can, can help, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's one of those things where you just have to do it and you have to have faith that people really want to do a good job. Yeah. Um, I think Chris Ducker in his book, Virtual Freedom, had, they call it, he calls it Superman syndrome, thinking that only you care enough and will do a great job with each part of your business. It's just not true. Yeah. And we're so blessed now to have access to global talent. Yes. And, and literally like, I mean, I, 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 you know, I think in the world of who will do this, not, not how will I do this? Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, one of the things that um, I wish I remember who it was, it was another entrepreneurs organization member who gave a talk one time and who had grown their business significantly sold it for like 60 or 70 million bucks. Um, and, you know, was asked some of the, you know, secrets, so to speak. And they talked about this idea of, you know, hiring people a delegation and, and, you know, that, that exactly what you were talking about, how people are afraid. And there, what they did was they established a mantra where they said, if somebody can do it 80% as good as I can, I'm going to hand it off. Right. And what they said was that, you know, it's just, first of all, sometimes we just have unreasonable expectations and you can't grow if you, everything's got to be perfect. 
But the second thing is somebody challenged them on that and said, you know, in my business, like I could say that as a lawyer, right? In my law firm business, 80% would not cut it, right? I'd be, you know, I'd be brought up for malpractice. I would be, clients would be miserable, whatever. But, uh, but what they explained was it really wasn't the case it was 80%. It was a mentality thing. Because the truth is that a bunch of what people think is, 80, is, is the 20% is actually not any worse result for the client. It's just that people work differently. And a lot of entrepreneurs think if it's different, it's not as good, right? So right. It, was, it, was, it was a mental concept that had them. And the truth is they ended up getting folks that were doing way above 80%. It was just that that was the concept that had them be able to release it, you know? So I thought it was really interesting because I see a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, who really hold on to stuff and, you know, which is why opportunities like this that provide, you know, pa- I mean, my passive income is the holy grail for a lot of people, right? No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, between you and me, there's nothing passive. We could have had a billion dollars and right. we got to still deploy that capital. I mean, there's nothing right. passive, but this is about as passive as you can get once you set it up. Yeah. So, so Mark, if people want to find out more about whether it's your training programs or for the folks that are accredited investors and want to, you know, invest in some of your vehicles uh, on, the, on the do it for you program, what are the best places for them to go? I would say the landgeek.com is the best place to start. And then, if they're a credit investor, they can just email me directly, uh, M-A-R-K, Mark, at thelandgeek.com. Thelandgeek.com. And by the way, you have a book, right, as well, don't you? I, I do, Dirt Rich. And I, it's not, it sounds like we had the same publisher, Scribe. Okay, no, I used a different one, but similar. Similar model. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Similar model. Um, so, and that's available in all the usual places, I would assume. All the usual places, yeah, okay. Absolutely. Awesome. Great. So, Mark, my final question in the podcast is always about my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. We've been alluding to some of that, right? You know, time, whatever. But uh, and for me, that honestly means freedom from, you know, everybody in the world from oppression to, to the reason I'm an entrepreneur and I don't have a boss, right? It's, it's a pretty broad-reaching concept for me. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? It's such a good, interesting question. So, I used to want freedom to do things, you know, freedom to travel, freedom to spend time with my kids, freedom to, you know, work where I want, what I want, with whom I want. And today, as I've evolved, I want freedom from. Mm. Uh, I want freedom from uh, stress or anxiety. I want freedom from just the day-to-day things that my mind would kind of get caught up in. Yeah. So that, that's really what freedom kind of means to me now is, can I be free in every moment? And, you know, not dwell on the past, not obsess about the future. You know, can I enjoy each and every precious moment? Because that's really all I have. And to me, that's really total freedom. Mark Podolsky, thank you so much for being an amazing guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thanks, Corey. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, Go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, 
wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.